Russian military forces targeted the capital of Ukraine again today, this time by kamikaze drones. The attacks were unsettling and deadly, but what let's, what's less clear is whether they changed anything about the war. The role of the drones coming up. It's Monday, October 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, we follow President Biden as he continues to hit the campaign trail as the midterms draw near. Polling shows a majority of Hispanic voters plan to support Democrats in the upcoming midterms, but that support is waning among certain groups. The real problem with Democrats are the men of color, non-college educated men in particular. More on why Democratic strategists are sounding the alarm. Also, we'll hear about the software that helps landlords set the highest possible prices for rent. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Russia may now be carrying out nighttime drone attacks on Ukraine. Reuters News Service cites a video addressed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in which he accuses the Russians of launching a new wave of drone strikes. It's unclear where. This morning, drones were heard buzzing over the capital, Kiev. The first explosions were heard before 7 a.m. local time. Audio from body cam footage of police officers on a highway firing heavy guns at an approaching explosives-laden drone before scrambling for their vehicles when the drone exploded nearby. At least four people in Kiev were killed. Iran denies it has supplied drones to Russia. The White House says Iran's lying. Calls are mounting for sanctions against Iran as the Islamic Republic faces persistent unrest at home. Protesters began weeks ago after a young woman died in police custody after being arrested for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. But economic and other grievances with the Iranian government are now also fueling protests. The Biden administration has officially launched studentaid.gov, a site where borrowers can apply for as much as $20,000 in student loan forgiveness. As millions of people fill out the application, we're going to make sure the system continues to work as smoothly as possible so that we can deliver student loan relief for millions of Americans as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Officials say that following a brief beta testing period, no glitches were found in the system. President Biden says more than 8 million people applied for loans over the weekend. The government estimates that more than 40 million Americans will be eligible for the program. A new report from Congress shares a behind-the-scenes look at the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. NPR's Ping Huang reports it shows how the Trump administration at the time interfered with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Jay Butler, a top CDC official, said he was demoralized and haunted by how the Trump White House stripped down the CDC's COVID guidance. There will be people who will get sick and perhaps die because of what we were forced to do, he told colleagues in 2020. It's one of many details in a new report from the House Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, which has been looking into the government's response for the past two years. The report uses interviews from top CDC officials to document how the Trump administration compromised CDC messaging and undermined the agency. Polls show that public trust in the CDC dropped from 80% to 50% during the pandemic. The CDC tells NPR that it is not commenting on the report. Ping Huang, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up 550 points or 1.8% to end the day at 30,000. 
185. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Teachers are on strike in Haverhill and Malden. The work stoppages began today. There's no decision yet on whether there'll be classes tomorrow. Unions that represent teachers in both cities are seeking higher salaries for educators. Meanwhile, Governor Charlie Baker is calling for a quick end to the strikes. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor says the state's Department of Labor Relations has been actively involved in mediating conversations in Malden and Haverhill. He says he's hoping for a mediated solution in the next few days and suggests that may necessitate court action. Obviously, it's against the law to strike. I think it's our hope that there will be a move to engage the courts in this conversation so that kids are going to school. We all know what happened when kids didn't go to school. Baker says it is his hope that the parties can come to terms on a contract and get kids, teachers, and staff back in school. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. More than a dozen of the truck drivers who were on strike were arrested during a rally in Plimpton this morning. Police say members of Teamsters Local 653 used tractor trailers to block exits at a food warehouse run by restaurant supplier Cisco. The truckers have been on strike from Cisco since October 1st. They're asking for better pay and benefits. Mayor Michelle Wu of Boston has rejected a proposed 20 percent pay raise that counselors approve for themselves and for her. WBR's Fausto Menard has more on today's veto. The council voted unanimously for the proposal earlier this month. It would have bumped each member's pay from about $103,000 to $125,000 annually after the next election. The mayor's salary would have increased from $207,000 to a quarter of a million dollars a year. The council's plan was higher than an 11% pay hike that Mayor Wu proposed. In a letter to the council today, the mayor stated that the raises were out of line with what some other city workers were getting. She's recommending the council adopt her original recommendation. To override the veto and approve the larger raises, nine of the 13 councillors would need to vote to do so. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. And the forecast, a gray and damp fall day, clouds, maybe a thunderstorm overnight tonight, staying right about the mid-50s. Tomorrow could be much like today, cloudy and rainy. Most of the showers should stick to the first part of the day, highs rising to 61. Wednesday, sunny, breezy, topping out at 58 degrees. 57 now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. If you feel like you've been getting squeezed on rent these days, or you've been priced out of the market for your area entirely, you're not alone. Rental rates for housing are rising around the country, sometimes by double-digit percentages. One reason might be a software algorithm that helps landlords set the highest possible prices for rent. A new report from ProPublica examines a Texas-based company called RealPage, which makes the program. Reporter Heather Vogel is here to talk about it now. Hi, Heather. Hi. Would you tell us first what prompted you to look into this software and this company? Sure. I actually received an email from a tenant who was so alarmed by the rent increases that he was seeing in Seattle that he started poking around doing some research into what was happening with the property managers in his neighborhood. And he came across RealPage and mention of this pricing software. 
And so he reached out to me and I was intrigued and started looking into it myself. Walk us through how the software works, how the algorithm works. The algorithm takes into account characteristics of apartments like the floor plan, bedrooms, things like that, and also of the property that the apartment's located in. And then what it does is it makes a recommendation to the property manager, a suggested price for every available unit, and the property manager can decide whether they want to accept or suggest it. But what we were told by a few former RealPage executives was that typically about 90% of those suggestions are adopted, as the software suggests. Overall, how much were you able to determine the degree to which this company is a driving force behind rising rental rates in the country? I think it's very difficult to pin that question down. I could not answer that definitively with my reporting. But we were able to see the impact was in certain specific neighborhoods in terms of how many landlords were using the software, what the rent trends were, and also the company's own marketing material uh, boasted repeatedly that they were helping landlords beat the market by 3 to 7%. Well, you know, many renters know that sometimes you can go to your landlord and say, could you not raise it this year or could you not raise it as much? But one of the things I found most striking about your report is that this software basically eliminates empathy from the process. Could you explain that? RealPage was discouraging landlords and is discouraging landlords from bargaining with renters, suggesting that landlords accept the prices as is instead of working things out with renters. One of the reasons we were told that it does that, as one of the developers put it, there was a feeling among property managers that leasing agents, the people who were on the ground actually helping renters sign their leases and hammering out these final details, they might have too much empathy for the renters. So that was, you know, an actual phrase that somebody used to me. It sounds like it almost lets people be hard-hearted by hiding behind the software. I guess there's some people who probably would see it that way. <laughs> Did you find any instances of landlords who rejected the program's high or higher prices? I did speak with one property agent who said that when her building started using Yieldstar, it was really shooting for very high prices and leasing slowed way, way, way down. So they did push back. The landlord ended up raising rents a little bit more gradually. And she kind of came away with it, not sure whether the pricing software may have been correct or whether her judgment may have been correct. What did this company, RealPage, say about its software when you talked to them? They told me that their software uses aggregated market data from, quote, a variety of sources in a legally compliant manner. And they said that the old way of checking prices for competitors was that the property managers would call around and find out what their competitors were charging. They said that their software eliminates the need to make those sorts of calls, which the company said could itself put the property manager at risk of uh, collusion. Heather, after all your reporting, what did you come away thinking this means for renters overall? Well, I think that there is a big concern that this type of software being used so much in certain markets will push prices up above competitive levels. We know that there are a lot of renters devoting an increasing amount of their income to rent, and it's creating a very big burden for them. That's ProPublica reporter Heather Vogel. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you so much. As the midterms draw closer, President Biden is spending more time on the road trying to help Democratic candidates in certain tough races, but not all of them. NPR's Tamara Keith traveled with him to Colorado, California, and Oregon to suss out his strategy. 
At a union hall in Portland, Oregon, volunteers with the state's Democratic Party sit shoulder to shoulder at long tables, dialing voters on their cell phones. They're here to help Tina Kotek, the Democrat running for governor who is facing a tough three-way race. Hello, Oregon. In walks President Biden, pink and white donut box in hand. I assume you're clapping for the donuts. Like many presidents before him at this point in their first term, Biden is unpopular. That means there are a lot of races where he could hurt more than he helps. But Oregon is a very blue state. You know, when I was running for office, and thank you, some of you helped me here. God, it was nice winning by 16 points. God, it may. But two years later, Democrats are nervous. There's an independent candidate who could peel off enough Democratic votes to open the door for the first Republican governor of Oregon in more than a generation. At one point, Biden puts his arm around Kotech. What a governor does matters. It matters. It matters, it matters, it matters. The next day, they were at a union training center raising money. Then they stopped into a Baskin-Robbins for some ice cream. I'm getting a double-dip chocolate chip on the waffle cone. Biden projected calm as he waited for his waffle cone. I think she's going to win. I really do. I think people are going to show up and vote. I think it's going to work. This was Biden's longest campaign swing, but it was decidedly low-key. There were no rallies, just small audience speeches about his accomplishments and a couple of fundraisers. On Friday night in Los Angeles, Biden helped raise $5 million, money that will help congressional candidates all over the country. Brendan Doherty is a politics professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. Any president, even an unpopular president, is the most effective fundraiser in the party. So presidents, even when they're not highly sought after at campaign rallies, are always in high demand when it comes to raising much-needed campaign cash. There are a lot of candidates who don't want to appear side-by-side with Biden. Republicans have roundly mocked them for their remarkable ability to have scheduling conflicts whenever he's in town. But Democratic strategist Liz Smith says Biden and Democrats are being smart. This is not Joe Biden's first rodeo. He lived through the 2010 shellacking where having Barack Obama be so visible in the midterms uh, actually hurt Democrats. And so he's trying to learn from the mistakes of the past, put his ego in the back seat, and it's the best thing for the party as a whole. And there are places where it can help. At an event in Colorado, Biden made sure to give a little extra love to Senator Michael Bennett, who's running for re-election this year in a tougher-than-expected race. I want Michael to come back up here a second. In Los Angeles, Biden touted the infrastructure law at a construction site for a new metro line, shouting out Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's running for L.A. mayor. And the president delivered the core of his midterm message. We've got an election in the month. Voters have to decide. Democrats are working to bring down the cost of things and to talk about around the kitchen table, from prescription drugs to health insurance to energy bills and so much more. We're standing up for working people. Then they stopped into a nearby taco shop for some classic retail politics. How are you? Take out order for fast. Asked if he might visit states with tougher Senate races like Nevada and Georgia, Biden didn't get into specifics. I'm going to other races. I can't tell you how many, but I'm going to be on the road. In the coming days, Biden will go to Pennsylvania and Florida for more fundraisers. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
Hey, Sasha. Yes, Elsa. I have a riddle for you. What is six feet tall, is made of two types of dough, and has a complicated relationship with the force? I'm going to give you a hint. Solo, we'll figure it out. We'll use the force. That's not how the force works. I think the answer has to be Han Solo. Close, but you'd butter think again. (laughs) We're talking about a baked sculpture known as Pan Solo, a doughy version (laughs) of the iconic image of Han Solo, frozen in carbonite from the film The Empire Strikes Back. It's the latest masterpiece from a mother-daughter baking duo in Benicia, California. Because I was really keen on doing like a C-3PO, R2-D2 sort of thing. And, you know, again, iconic and, and it just makes you smile. That's mom, Catherine Pervan. She says that while the commitment that goes into these massive bread sculptures often exceeds 100 hours, the time spent with her daughter makes it worth it. When we're doing this creative process together, we're just, you know, we put some music on and we're just hanging out after hours. And it's it's really nice. It's a moment for us. Daughter Hannah Lee Pervan says this has been a lifelong dream. Baking is the the only thing I've ever wanted to do my whole life. So all of my, you know, all my good memories, all my happy memories are associated with food and with baking and with my mom and my grandmother. The Pervans have baked a number of Star Wars-inspired treats over the years. Natalie can even tell you what the creation should smell like. They smell like, or they should smell like, um, like caramelized, like baking dough. But the final product smells like shellac. Sadly, Hannah Lee, who has ongoing problems smelling and tasting her breads after a bout of COVID, has had to rely on her mom for the smell test. But she says watching others enjoy her creations makes it all worthwhile. To watch other people, like, go to the sculpture and, like, you know, they're so excited about it. And these little kids are going crazy. And it's just something, like, I've been able to find joy in cooking again. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how coal companies managed to make money as they sidestepped laws that demanded they clean up old mines when they close. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com and Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. On Wall Street, big gains to start up the week. The Dow gained 1.86%. That's 551 points to close at 30,168. S&P rose even more, 2.65% to finish the day at 36.78. And the Nasdaq gained nearly 3.5% to finish at 10,678. Details coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30 and it's now 4.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. 
Coming to City Space Monday, October 24th, here and now co-host Scott Tong interviews whistleblower Chelsea Manning about her new memoir, Read Me Text, tickets at wbur.org slash events. Rainy through the afternoon and the evening and overnight tonight as well. Temperatures right about the mid-50s where they are now. For tomorrow, rain returns mostly before 1 o'clock, then clouds through the day. Highs about 61 degrees. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity with Fidelity Income Planning. Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. This week, we're taking a look at coal company bankruptcies and mine reclamation as part of a joint investigation taken on by reporters from Bloomberg News and NPR. Coal companies have used bankruptcy and asset transfers to shed their obligations to their workers and to the environment. One of these companies is Alpha Metallurgical Resources. NPR's Dave Mistich brings us this look at Alpha and how environmental cleanup is going at sites they used to own and how it's affected the local community. Today, we're going to be going up on Sundial. Junior Walk of Coal River Mountain Watch is an annoyance to coal companies with mines near his home in Raleigh County, West Virginia. A few years back, he was arrested for sitting on one of Alpha's properties to keep them from mining. Walk, who's lived all 32 years of his life in this area, spends his days trying to hold operators to environmental regulations. Around these parts, he says underground mining has been mostly phased out in favor of mountaintop removal. This just erases tracts of land, turns them from one of the most vibrant, biologically diverse forests on the entire planet into a bare rock moonscape where nothing will ever really grow again. We load up and walks green Subaru station wagon to drive around the area as he keeps an eye on nearby mining operations. Many mines here are owned by Alpha, or used to be. Walk takes us up a narrow dirt road. Tree branches and briars scrape across the hood and roof of the car. After a short hike up a hill, we make our way to a clearing. All right, we go to the left right here. Here, to avoid the risk of trespassing, Walk puts a drone up in the air to get a look at the Ed White mine a giant surface mine once owned by Alpha. When they see something potentially off, Walk and the others at Coal River Mountain Watch send their concerns to state regulators. Sometimes small fines are handed down. Other times though, Walk says, regulators just give these companies, especially the most profitable ones, a warning or simply work with them to revise the terms of a permit. For Walk, who worked for a short time in the coal industry when he was younger, His current mission is personal. He points to a giant map on the wall at the offices of Coal River Mountain Watch, noting the potential dangers that loom nearby. That includes the Brushy Fork Impoundment, an enormous dam owned by Alpha that holds back coal slurry. Holds back 7.8 billion gallons of toxic waste. And my parents' house is right here. So if you look at the toe of that field, if it was to bust open and come right out this holler, they'd be some of the first people to die. Alpha says on its website that its impoundments are constructed and inspected under federal regulations. The company filed for bankruptcy in August 2015. Since then, the company has transferred more than 300 mining permits to smaller companies. 
That's more than it currently holds. Along with those permits, Alpha also got rid of its responsibility to reclaim the land it mined. Coal companies are supposed to restore the land under federal law. This is all spelled out in the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977, known as SMACRA. But University of Chicago assistant law professor Josh Macy says through corporate maneuvers like bankruptcy and asset transfers, many big coal companies have been able to shed all sorts of liabilities. The basic idea was that coal companies tried to silo or separate many of their environmental and labor obligations into subsidiaries or certain affiliates and place the coal mines that they viewed as valuable assets into other affiliates. Congress has been forced to step in time and again to fund worker obligations like pensions and black lung benefits, passing most of the cost on to taxpayers. To get a mining permit, coal companies need to be insured for the reclamation that's supposed to happen when they're done mining. But those policies don't always cover the full cost of cleanup. Because of that, Macy says taxpayers could end up footing the bill for these obligations too. And it's very, very hard to see how that promise will be fulfilled in a world in which coal mining companies rarely have the resources to pay for reclamation right now. In a deal approved by regulators in West Virginia and Kentucky, Alpha handed over about 230 mining permits to the smaller Lexington Coal Company, along with more than $300 million to fund environmental cleanup. Since taking over these permits, Lexington Coal has racked up a slew of violations for not securing potential environmental hazards. And this lack of cleanup has created some costly problems for those who live near these mines. All of my land has always been dry as powder, but they wouldn't know water whatsoever on it. That's 70-year-old Miles Hatfield of Hardy, Kentucky. Hatfield, a former coal miner, lived next to the Love Branch Mine, once owned by Alpha and now on the hands of Lexington. Over time, he started to notice polluted red mine water. After they shut down the mines, that's when it kind of started appearing little by little. A couple of years ago, water from the mine damaged his home to the point where he fell through the floor of his dining room. Since then, the red water from the Love Branch mine has continued to flow into Hatfield's property, forcing him to move out and pay rent for another home. I've lost about everything. Uh, everything in my shop, everything I had stored, I kept moving it from a wet place to a dry place, and then the water would catch up. So I basically lost everything I had. Regulators in Kentucky determined that the red water flowing onto Hatfield's property was from the mine and fined Lexington $30,000 in June. Similar stories next to former Alpha Mines, now owned by Lexington, are playing out in southern West Virginia. Beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. In Mingo County, West Virginia, between the towns of Music and Pie, is the Mountaineer Mine. 36-year-old Gary Van Natter, another former coal miner, attributes the frequent flooding on his property to mining and a lack of reclamation. They mined underneath us, but now it's like a river underneath us. I mean, it's literally water. It comes out of the ground. Van Natter shows us cracks in the foundation of his home and his above-ground swimming pool that's sinking into the earth. Just across a fence, the ground is opening up in his neighbor's yard. I might have to move. I might not get what I got in this home here, you know. And uh, if I have to leave here, that's just, man, that's, that's gut-wrenching. The Mountaineer Mine hasn't produced any coal since 2013. But Lexington Coal Company wound up with the permit and the responsibility to clean up the land as part of the deal with Alpha. State regulator documents say the Mountaineer Mine has contributed to the flooding on Van Natter's land. 
He says he isn't surprised that Alpha offloaded that permit and the others. They done that because they knew that there was going to be future problems. In my mind, why would you, uh, and Lex, I can't believe that Lexington was crazy enough to, to buy all these mines knowing that, hey, it's all going to have to be supposedly restored back to the way it was before you mined it. It can never go back. In a statement to both Bloomberg and NPR, Alpha says it has conducted itself ethically throughout the course of its operations and noted the funding it has provided to smaller operators, like Lexington, who have taken over its mines. Alpha also pointed out that these asset transfers were approved by multiple regulators. Lexington didn't answer questions, but has said in the past that it strives for full compliance with environmental regulations. Dave Mistich, NPR News. The Federal Reserve's attempts to slay the dragon of inflation are changing the way banks make money. Rate hikes mean banks are earning more money through interest, but big money deals are falling through. We had zero interest rates for a decade. We have massive monetary and fiscal stimulus. We have the first land war in Europe in uh, 70 years, the highest inflation in 40 years, and the Fed had to move. And with that, there will be consequences. Hear more tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy and wet this evening and tonight. Lows still around 55 overnight. Tomorrow, gray once again. The morning commute could be messy tomorrow with rain holding on to the first part of the day and just a lot of clouds around. Highs about 61 degrees. Sunshine should emerge for Wednesday. Temperatures in the upper 50s. Bruins take on the Florida Panthers tonight at the Garden. The puck drops at 7. 57 degrees now at 430. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental of Massachusetts, knowing that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Tens of millions of federal student loan borrowers are now able to apply online for up to $20,000 in debt cancellation. President Biden officially launched the site studentaid.gov from the White House today after a brief beta test found no glitches in the system. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says more than 8 million people applied for the loans over the weekend. We've seen an overwhelmingly positive uh, response as well as a strong website performance uh, since we, we began testing the site this past Friday night. So it's been very positive. The government estimates more than 40 million Americans will be eligible for the student loan forgiveness program. Individuals who earn less than $125,000 in the last two years are eligible, as well as couples who earn less than 250000 
EU foreign ministers are considering how to sanction Iran if it's proven the regime is supplying Russia with drones used in Moscow's latest attacks on Ukraine. As Terry Schultz tells us, some EU governments say it's time to identify and punish those countries helping the Kremlin. EU foreign ministers have approved sanctions against Iranian individuals and entities accused of brutally repressing demonstrations for more human rights. But there are also calls to impose punitive measures over Tehran's alleged supply of deadly drones to Russia. EU top diplomat Joseph Burrell says the bloc is seeking concrete evidence of this, but some governments already seem certain. Here's Danish Foreign Minister Jeppe Kofod. Iranian drones are used apparently to attack in the middle of Kiev. This is an atrocity we need to address. Lithuania's government Elias Landsberger says the EU should move faster. There has to be a clear attribution of missile ownership. Iran is uh, becoming an accomplice in the war. Foreign policy chief Burrell notes Iran denies supplying the drones. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And you are listening to NPR. This is 98.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Schools are closed in Malden today as hundreds of educators are out on strike. And 30 miles north, it's a similar story as teachers in Haverhill are also on strike. As WBR's Max Larkin reports, unions in both cities say they have common concerns. In Malden, picketing teachers argue the district's relatively low pay leads both to understaffing and overwork. With dozens of positions unfilled, Douglas Dias, an administrator and union leader, says it's hard even to cover every classroom. Math coaches that have been assigned to teach because we can't find a math teacher. I myself have gone in and helped cover classes. We have to make do with what we have. Unionized teachers in Haverhill also cited pay concerns. In Malden and Haverhill, city officials were planning to resume negotiations with the unions as of Monday afternoon in hopes of bringing one or both strikes to a close. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Despite the teacher strike in Haverhill, school officials there say meals will be provided to students who need them. A representative of the Haverhill School Department says 300 lunches were distributed to students today at eight spots throughout the city. They expect to distribute a similar number of breakfasts tomorrow. The teachers' union says it's in favor of the meal program. Another partial subway shutdown goes into effect tonight, so the MBTA can perform track work. Shuttle buses will replace trains on the blue line between Bowdoin and Orient Heights for the next four evenings. The shutdown will begin at 8.45 p.m. and last through the end of the service uh, each night through Thursday night. It's 4.34. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu met. A rainy day on Monday with showers and maybe a thunderstorm overnight tonight should feel about where it is right now in the mid-50s. Tomorrow the rain returns mostly before 1 in the afternoon. Clouds stick around for the day, though, inching up to about 61 degrees. Clouds move out after that, leaving us with sunshine Wednesday and maybe Thursday. Pretty seasonable in the upper 50s. 57 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Russian forces targeted the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev again today. But this time, they deployed kamikaze drones. The attacks were unsettling and deadly. But what's less clear is whether they change anything about the war, a war in which Ukraine continues to have the upper hand. For more on this, we've got NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman on the line with us. Hey, Tom. Hey, also. Okay, so can you first tell us a little more about these latest drones? Well, again, these are Iranian-made drones. Hundreds have been sent uh, to the Russians. And as you say, they're kamikaze drones that explode on impact, basically terror weapons. Now, the Russians launched 28 into Kiev, and the Ukrainians were able to shoot down all but five of them. And the ones that got through killed uh, four people, including a young couple expecting a baby. Now, the Washington Post reported today, by the way, that an NPR confirmed that the Iranians may send even more sophisticated drones and long-range missiles to Russia for use in Ukraine, escalating the fight even more, Elsa. Well, Ukraine, I mean, they've also deployed drones pretty effectively throughout this war, right? Like, what kinds of drones does Ukraine have at the moment? Oh, they're very effective. The Ukrainians are getting all sorts of drones. There are Turkish-made drones, another from the U.S., a kamikaze drone, again, called a switchblade, which has been able to take out Russian armored vehicles. There's another called Phoenix Ghost, which can loiter in the sky for up to six hours and conduct surveillance of Russian forces, even has infrared sensors so it can operate at night. The U.S. is sending hundreds of them. Okay. Well, all of this comes in the wake of missile strikes on Kiev and throughout Ukraine about a week ago. What are you hearing from U.S. officials about where things stand right now? Well, things aren't going well for the Russians on the ground. They're losing ground in the east, in the Donbass area, and also in the south around the city of Kherson. So it seems the Russians are relying on missiles and drones to basically pummel Ukraine. Mostly, it seems, a civilian population. Uh, they're striking apartment buildings, playgrounds, uh, power facilities, and dams, all meant to break the will of the Ukrainian people as winter approaches. So the U.S. and NATO nations are sending more and better air defense systems, including one called NATO. Psalms, which, by the way, is used to protect the Washington, D.C. area, including the White House. Mm. Now, that can monitor dozens of targets and is expected to be in Ukraine in the coming weeks. But here's the thing, Elsa. It's important to note that there's no complete umbrella with air defense. The Pentagon says with these better systems, they can, you know, better protect critical areas, of course, Kiev and other cities and Ukrainian troops. But again, it's not a complete umbrella. Right. Well, I get, Tom, that no one can predict the future, but I am curious, what are your sources saying about where this war might be headed? Well, Ukraine, again, seems to have the upper hand on the ground. They're on the move, taking casualties, of course, but seizing uh, more ground from the Russians. The Russians are getting hit hard by long-range artillery provided by the U.S. and others, uh, losing command centers, troops, and supplies. That will make it only harder for the Russians as winter sets in. But it's important to note, as military officials tell us, the Russians still have a lot of firepower, as we've seen with the attacks on Kiev. Uh, not necessarily precision rockets or missiles, but enough to make life miserable for the average Ukrainian. And no one I talk with believes this war will end anytime soon. There's no appetite on either side to sit down and talk. That is NPR's Tom Bowman. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome.
Latino voters represent the second largest and fastest growing group in the U.S. electorate. Recent polls by Pew and Washington Post-Ipsos show a majority of Latino voters plan to support Democrats in next month's midterm elections. But surveys also show that support waning, and that has Democratic strategists sounding an alarm bell. I spoke about this earlier today with Chuck Rocha, a Democratic strategist who has worked on both of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns. Here's our conversation. Chuck, right before the last presidential election in 2020, you warned that Democrats weren't taking the Latino vote seriously. Do you still think that's the case? I do not. There are still parts of the party apparatus that is still underperforming, in my opinion, on how they are doing their outreach. But it is being mostly overweighted by folks who have taken what happened in the last election, especially in the Senate, that are probably doing more work in Spanish and in the community earlier than I have ever seen them done before. But then on the House side, now that they've had redistricting, there's all these districts that have heavy Latino populations. I see them running the same playbook that they did before, and I think it could actually cost Democrats the House of Representatives. One of the recent polls we mentioned from Washington Post-Ipsos found that Democrats in congressional races have a 27-point advantage with voters who identify as Hispanic. That's a pretty generous margin. But that is a decline compared to a nearly 40-point advantage the party had in 2018. Why do you think Democrats have been losing ground here? It's a couple of things. One is Republicans used to not compete for this vote. I've been doing this work for over 30 years, Sasha. And up until about eight years ago, Republicans would just walk past a Latino neighborhood. So just them showing up and competing for the vote is a big part. I think it's very important for folks to know Democrats are going to win the Latino vote and Latino voters. But what's happening is we're losing a little support, little at a time to Republicans because they're competing and Latinos are coming of age quicker than any other demographic. So we're younger. And guess what? Younger voters are more infrequent voters. And to where we are today, they're more apt not to participate in an off-year election, which again, harms Democrats more than Republicans. Of course, no racial or ethnic group votes in lockstep, and we should expect continued and even growing diversity in in the Latino vote. So with all that diversity, how do you advise Democrats in terms of how they need to focus their efforts and and their messaging? I've been telling Democrats we need to get back to the reason that I joined the Democratic Party in 1990, and it was around working class values, keeping jobs in America. We've lost that narrative, and even, I would argue, succumb some of that argument to people like Donald Trump. Democrats need to get back to really courting a blue collar worker, which is now because of the demographic growth of Latinos, a big part of that sector. What about issues like abortion and our our dicey economy? How is that changing the political landscape for candidates trying to court the Latino vote? You see the the Dobbs decision being super duper impactful with women and women of color. But women already were overperforming for Democrats, especially women of color. The real problem with Democrats are the men and the men of color, non-college educated men in particular. And that's where your argument around the economy and jobs and focus group after focus groups with Latinos this summer. That's what particularly men were talking about. Things that they don't feel like Democrats, in their opinion, have been delivering for them, even though Joe Biden and the Democrats have probably done more in the last two years than any administration in a two-year period in a long time. So it's very frustrating when the message is not resonating down to the grassroots in many communities. 
So how worried nationally do you think the party should be about this trend beyond this year's midterms? There's one fact that is clear beyond shadow of a doubt, and that is that Latino voters will have a dramatic impact on who controls the House and the Senate just because of the concentration of our population in the most marginal seats in America. So Democrats are worried at every level. I'm currently really worried about keeping the House and some of the most important seats, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, and Florida. So stay tuned because there's a reason why there's a lot of worry out there. That's Democratic strategist Chuck Rocha. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Top officials with China's ruling Communist Party are meeting in Beijing this week to anoint their next leadership. China's current leader, Xi Jinping, is widely expected to remain in power for a third five-year term. But as NPR's Emily Fang reports, we know very little about how the party makes these big decisions. This is what we get to see of the party congress, unveiled to us at the very end. Usually a line of seven men who form the next top echelon of Communist Party leadership. They're called the Politburo Standing Committee, and it's this group that makes all the big decisions in China for the next five years. What we do not see is how they were chosen. It's a legitimating activity. That's Ling Li, who teaches Chinese politics at the University of Vienna in Austria on a decision-making process that is shrouded in secrecy. Instead of just appointing new party leaders, they go through all these electoral procedures, which is very much rehearsed and planned. But the result gives the choices of the next generation of party leaders uh, a heightened legitimacy. The few rules that are written down in the party charter either aren't followed or they can be changed to produce the desired political outcome. For example, this time, Xi Jinping, the current head of China's Communist Party, wants to stay on beyond two five-year terms, despite previous efforts to standardize power transitions. The the whole norm of serving two terms, you know, 10 years, is a very new thing. That's Victor Shi, a professor of Chinese politics at the University of California, San Diego. And Xi Jinping doesn't seem to just want a third term. He effectively could be the country's leader for life. He will serve the third term, but then people are like, well, what about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Is there ever going to be a plan to have a successor to Xi Jinping? Since the 1980s, then-party leader Deng Xiaoping tried to standardize how leaders are appointed and distribute decision-making power among the Politburo Standing Committee. These reforms were meant to prevent an autocrat from taking power for life and reduce the influence of retired officials. But Alfred Wu, a political science professor at the National University of Singapore, says this party congress will likely signal a reversal of all of this. Deng Xiaoping tried to argue for a modernization of uh, Chinese public administration system. So he does not want uh, some senior folks to uh, dominate the politics in China. But now it looks like uh, uh, someone, someone will be in power forever. And now Xi Jinping has amassed enormous power over not just the Communist Party, but the country's military and police as well. Still, 
Wu Qiang. He's an independent political analyst in Beijing. He says people in China are closely watching this party congress. It will showcase just how much of a hold Xi Jinping actually has over the Chinese Communist Party. Even those who feel fear or regret at the party's political controls have this fantasy that there will be some kind of effort at accountability, even a political pivot where Xi's third term is opposed by officials within the Communist Party. That's why this party congress is so important. It gives us a glimpse of where China is heading. But in reality, almost none of what goes on behind the scenes is ever revealed. And that's extraordinary, just how little we know about how one of the most powerful countries in the world is run. Emily Fang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, we'll meet Lebanon's first all-female thrash metal band, the subjects of a new documentary, Sirens. In transportation news, another partial subway shutdown goes into effect tonight, so the MBA, uh, MBTA can conduct track work. Evening service on the Blue Line will be temporarily suspended between Bowdoin and Orient Heights for the next four evenings. The shutdown begins at 8.45 tonight. It'll last through the end of each night through Thursday. Shuttle buses will carry passengers along the closed portion of the line. This is WBUR. It's 4.49. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And the Boston Book Festival, in person in Copley Square on October 29th. Celebrate the power of words. More at bostonbookfest.org. Cloudy and rainy overnight tonight. Same thing for tomorrow. Then sunshine returns on Wednesday. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Farmers down in South Texas are not getting the water that they were promised. The real fight is with Mexico, them living up their treaty obligations. I'm Kai Rizdal, water under the bridge and across the border as well. We'll have that story for you. The numbers from Wall Street and the rest of the day's business news, of course, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. What you're hearing is happening at the ruins of a Roman temple. It's an orchestra playing Led Zeppelin's Kashmir at a popular cultural event in Lebanon, the annual Baalbek International Festival. On stage are two young women rocking out on their electric guitars. They're Sherry Bashara and Lilas Mayasi, co-founders of Lebanon's first-ever thrash metal band, Slave to Sirens. They're the subject of Rita Baghdadi's new documentary called Sirens. I spoke with Rita and Lilas and started by asking Lilas how she formed the band. So I went on Facebook and I 
I would literally go on, just scroll through the newsfeed that I have and see if any girl would be holding a guitar or a bass. And I would instantly message them and see if they're <laughs> interested to join me. Rita, how did you find the band and why did you think this would make a good documentary? I discovered Slave to Sirens through their music. Uh, this was in 2018 when they had just put out their EP. So they had four songs on the internet. Uh, you know, one day I was just looking for new music to listen to. It's a big, you know, music's a big inspiration in my life and for my work. But I wasn't necessarily, you know, searching for a movie idea. Um, I was just trying to listen to some good music. And when I heard their songs, I was really struck by them. I was really blown away by uh, the amazing sound. And I just thought, I have to meet these incredibly strong, talented, amazing young women. But for me as a filmmaker, you know, as, as an Arab American growing up in a very tricky time in America for Arab people um, around 9-11 and the Iraq war, you know, circumstances where images and portrayals of Arab people in the media were really negative and demonizing. And women were really just um, non-existent in those stories anyway. Um, so when I met the band and thought about a film, it really brought me back to that time when I was a teenager. And I really wanted to make a film that I wish I had seen growing up, where Arab women could be the stars of their own story and, you know, not the victims of someone else's. Yeah. You, you know, in this documentary, the, the history and the politics and the dysfunction of Lebanon are always present. War and instability and protests and unemployment and banks running out of cash, electricity constantly go, going on and off, being told there's no future there. Lilas, how does being in a thrash band help you express that? Does it help you get out that frustration of living in that kind of environment, that kind of societal situation? Yeah, metal gave me a way to express myself. You know, everything that's surrounding us, not just Lebanon, even the MENA region, we're, we're always affected by whatever is happening around us. So metal gave me a way or a chance to, to just vent out and be able to, you know, say whatever I have on my mind through music. Lilas, you use the word venting. There's this powerful, memorable scene to me where one of your band members just roars. She just opens up her mouth and a roar comes out. And it, it, it just felt like it was letting out everything that she had been going through living in Beirut with all, all its problems, all its violence. The roar felt symbolic. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, these moments that every time we go to practice, I feel these moments are very, very special. And I feel they're sacred in a way because we're just doing our kind of ritual in, in healing all together. So, and venting out and expressing all, all these complex emotions that sometimes we don't have the words for. So, it's easier for us to write music and just let it all out through music. Rita, from a filmmaking perspective, I was thinking how well you contrasted so many of the scenes of, of the metal music with these violent street protest scenes. Everything going wrong. And it, it felt like you had this incredible device to reflect societal dysfunction 
and this sort of angry, pent-up, passionate music. Did that, how did you think about that as you were creating those scenes as a filmmaker? Well, exactly as Leela said, you know, it's sometimes you don't have the words for it. It's like you just feel so angry and you feel so, you know, powerless in moments. And I think to be able to just scream, you know, like women don't get enough opportunities to just scream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot to scream about. You know, when I first got there in November of 2018, um, it was a rel- it had been a relatively calm period in Lebanon. And sh- very soon after, that's when the economic collapse started happening. And then, of course, the revolution happened. When I saw the, you know, band practicing and, and writing their new album, you know, these factors were coming into play. You make an important point, which is that even if you just wanted to make a coming-of-age story absent politics— it seems that it's almost impossible to do that because the coming of age is so intertwined with the politics of the country and the society that how could you omit it? It seems like, as you concluded, you can't. Yeah, I would have felt that that was just completely, you know, um, not true to the experience that I had filming it and not true to the experience of the band and why they, they, they formed, you know, Lilas and Sherry met in a protest. They formed under protest and they write music that is you know, a rebellion in and of itself. Lilas, there's that moment in the beginning of the film where all you and your band members are pouring over some press you got and excited to see what has been said. I was getting ready to make some noise. I assume you've had a lot more of that since then. So what's your band up to these days? Uh, right now we, we finished uh, recording our album. We still have the vocals. Our vocalist Maya decided to go on a different path, unfortunately, and our drummer Tatiana as well. So, you know, life. <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're actively trying to find new members to regroup. We have big plans just touring the US and maybe signing to a label. I don't know. So big, big plans. So even having lost some band members, which often happens with bands, you still feel good. You still feel like it's going well and, this is, and you'll do this for a long time, maybe for as long as you can. Yeah, the way I see it, that I always keep moving forward no matter what. So all the remaining bandmates right now, my bandmates, Alma, the bassist, and Cherry, uh, guitarist, lead guitar. We just want to keep moving forward. And ultimately, that's the message behind the band, just to inspire everyone to never give up on their dreams, no matter how difficult life can be. And yeah, as long as there's the dedication, the perseverance and... You know, the hope, yeah, anything is possible. <laughs> and the support of good friends, of course. And the sisterhood. Yeah. That's Lilas Mayasi from the band Slave to Sirens and Rita Baghdadi, director of Sirens, the documentary about the band. It's in theaters now. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com 
NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia's Vladimir Putin has signaled willingness to use nuclear arms in Ukraine, but Russia's official policy is to use nuclear weapons only to defend its own territory. The big question is, are the parts of Ukraine that Russia has attempted to join to itself, are those parts Russian territory or not? This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Russia's dangerous game coming up. Hurricane Ian dealt a heavy blow to Florida's inland. Some farmers there now face massive crop losses and a long recovery. The first day or two after the storm, I was wondering whether I really wanted to start over again. But, but it's in your blood to do it. And that's what we do. Ian's effect on crops coming up. You can now get hearing aids over the counter or online. But what do you need to know about how to choose the best device? That's coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Trump's company charged the Secret Service exorbitant hotel rates on dozens of trips. That's according to the House Oversight Committee, which points to records of the charges showing Trump personally profiting from the presidency. More from NPR's Barbara Sprunt. The documents show that U.S. taxpayers paid Trump's company at least $1.4 million for Secret Service agent stays at the then-president's properties while protecting him and his family. According to the documents, the Secret Service was charged as much as $1,000 per room per night. That's nearly five times the government rate. The committee has asked the Secret Service to identify by the end of the month all Secret Service stays at properties owned by the Trump Organization, along with their total costs in order to get a full accounting of just how much was spent. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Waves of attacks by so-called suicide drones have been striking the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, killing at least four people and setting buildings on fire. The latest attacks that sent residents running for cover came a week after Russia unleashed its most widespread strike against the country in months. One drone struck a residential building while others hit energy and infrastructure facilities. The U.N. Secretary General is calling for, in his words, armed action to get aid flowing to Haiti, where criminal gangs are blocking the port. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. has drafted a Security Council resolution that could pave the way for such a force. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says this won't be another open-ended U.N. mission. She's proposing something more limited and asking countries to pitch in personnel and equipment. This resolution will propose a limited, carefully scoped, non-UN mission led by a partner country with the deep necessary experience required for such an effort to be effective. 
The U.S. is also working with Mexico on another resolution to impose sanctions on Haitian gangs that are blocking fuel and aid supplies as Haiti deals with a cholera outbreak. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Britain's new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, has announced the abandonment of almost all of Prime Minister Liz Truss's economic proposals. Bill Marks reports a dramatic political reversal. In a televised statement from his desk, Hunt said that Britain's most common income tax rate will stay the same rather than fall. He also announced a new government program designed to protect consumers from soaring energy prices will now only remain in place for six months rather than the two years promised several weeks ago. Hunt said this announcement, two weeks earlier than originally scheduled, was intended to end turmoil in financial markets. Within minutes of his statement, the pound strengthened in value against the US dollar and the cost of government borrowing fell even further, though it remained much higher than a month ago. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. A strong start to the week on Wall Street. The Dow is up 550 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's no word yet on whether school will resume tomorrow in Haverhill and Malden. Teachers in those cities went on strike this morning. They're seeking higher pay. This afternoon, the Haverhill School Committee said an Essex County court will hold a hearing tomorrow morning to determine whether the teachers' union in Haverhill will be subject to fines if teachers stay off the job. In Malden, some teachers who had the day off walked the picket line. Some students, that is, walked the picket line to support educators there. Malden High Senior Penelope Buckingham says striking teachers are not being malicious. They're fighting for better pay and advocating for students. These teachers are our whole world. They're incredible. They do so much for us. And they're being treated like garbage right now, and they don't deserve it. And we wanted to come show our support. Neither party in Malden has said today if negotiations have resumed after they ended without a deal yesterday. Boston's Mayor Michelle Wu is rejecting the city council's proposal to raise her salary and that of the council by 20 percent. She sent a letter to the council today and said the raises are too large and out of line with increases that other city workers have received. She's urging the council to instead adopt her proposal for an 11 percent pay raise, which would bring city councilor salaries to $115,000 a year and the mayor's salary to 230000 The council can override the mayor's veto and approve the larger salaries anyway if nine of its 13 members vote to do so. A leader of a neo-Nazi group accused of fighting with numerous people during a protest in Jamaica Plain this summer has been appointed a lawyer. Today, a judge appointed attorney Simon Glick to represent 23-year-old Christopher Hood of Pepperell. Hood was part of a group of people who protested outside a drag queen story hour in July. He has pleaded not guilty to fighting with counter-protesters. He's back in court in December. Gasoline prices in the state are creeping up after months of decline. The average price is up four cents in the last week to $3.60 a gallon. AAA says prices in the Northeast are rising because of an anticipated colder-than-normal winter which would increase demand for oil. In the forecast, some random showers into the evening hours and overnight tonight. Not too much change in the temperature, right about the mid-50s. A little bit higher tomorrow, up around 61 degrees, but it should be another day of gray. Some showers, mostly in the morning tomorrow. And then for Wednesday, sunshine returns could stick around for a few days, in fact. 59 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Xi Jinping is on the verge of achieving what was once fairly unexpected. Days from now, he will likely secure his third term as leader of the Chinese Communist Party. He's had a relatively quiet year on the international stage ahead of this fall's 20th Party Congress. But many have already been contemplating what the implications will be for Xi's continued leadership. One of those people is Yun Sun. She's a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. And she foresees a bolder Xi Jinping in the near future. She joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. So let me ask you, Xi Jinping is entering his third term as leader of the Chinese Communist Party. No other leader has had a third term like this since Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China. Tell me, what does a third term for Xi signal to you about his hold over the Chinese Communist Party in this moment? Well, it means that China has entered a new era and it's really a piece of uncharted water compared to what we have seen in the past four decades. In the past four decades, per the 1982 constitution, we knew that for sure China had a power transition plan for the leadership. So every 10 years, there is going to be a new leader and there is a consensus building process in terms of the selection of that leader. Mm -hmm. But now by abandoning that practice and that tradition, Xi Jinping's third term means that we don't know what the future leadership transition in China will look like or how it will be determined. And that raises a lot of potential for instability or even power struggle and elite politics competition within the Chinese Communist Party. And what's interesting is it has been a relatively politically trickier time for Xi Jinping lately, right? Like, can you talk about the effect that the zero COVID policy and the resulting economic slowdown in China has had on Xi's influence? Yes, indeed. 2022 has not been a good year for Xi Jinping. And especially if you consider the power transition and the third term that he has had his eyes on. 2022 is a terrible year. The Russian war in Ukraine also created a lot of uncertainty as well as embarrassment for China in terms of Xi Jinping's foreign policy. People ask questions that how did you reach that no limit cooperation commitment with Putin? Did you know that Putin was going to invade Ukraine within three weeks of that joint statement. So this year has really been hard for Xi Jinping because he has to explain, despite all these hardships and all these strategic headwinds that we have encountered this year, I still deserve the third term. Right. My leadership is still warranted. My leadership is still the best option for the party and for the Chinese people. The party Congress is celebrated and Chinese people just hope that, well, let's conclude this party Congress so that we can move forward. We can reduce some of the COVID related restrictions and we can resume normal economic and social activities. I want to talk further about the global implications of a third term for Xi Jinping. What does his holding on to power mean specifically for U.S.-China relations in your mind? I think it means three things. The first one is that with Xi Jinping inking his third term at the party congress, which means moving forward, he is not going to be distracted by this domestic political priority anymore. In the past five years, I would say Xi Jinping was aiming for the third term, but he had to prioritize how to convince 
the establishment within the party and convince the elderly leaders why it is a good idea to remove the term limit and why it is a good idea for him to violate the traditions that had been established. So moving forward, he's no longer going to be distracted by this political agenda, which is domestic primarily. Mm -hmm. So he's able to focus even more on implementing his foreign strategy and operationalizing his vision of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That inevitably will lead to even more, I would say, contest for influence and contest for leadership, contest for superiority with the United States. And the other two factors is within the party. After the 20th Party Congress and Xi Jinping secures his third term, he is going to appoint his political confidants and his political loyalists to all the key positions that are related to national security mm -hmm. and the foreign policy, because this is actually one of the area compared to, for example, domestic reform and domestic economic policy. This is an area that Xi Jinping is going to prevail. These people are going to operationalize his vision and his strategy with even more momentum and more precision. And that leaves us to the third factor, which is dissenting views. And the people who do not believe that Xi Jinping's current, for example, policy towards the United States is a good idea, their voices are going to be eliminated from within the bureaucracy. So there is not going to be check and balance. There is not going to be a challenge to the assumptions and to the existing consensus hmm. within the bureaucracy. And these three factors are all going to I believe, deepen Xi Jinping's boldness. Yun Sun is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We've been hearing a lot about the Florida barrier islands wrecked by Hurricane Ian, but that powerful storm also hit inland communities. Floodwaters still have not receded in some areas, and the state's crops have suffered. Tens of thousands of acres of farmland were in Ian's path. NPR's Debbie Elliott visited a ranch in Sarasota County to gauge what's ahead for farmers. The gravel and dirt turpentine still road leads to the Longineau Ranch, established 1934. You might miss the turn because the front sign is blown down in a ditch. Ranch manager Cliff Coddington heads out in his pickup to see what Hurricane Ian left behind. We're going to run up and look at some tree damage that's down and right here we're going through some water that it was uh, flowing over the road right here. This was up almost coming in the windows. The water is still up to the truck's tire well more than a week after the hurricane. Power lines were down, they've got them back up. We still don't have power yet, but they got the lines back up, so it's getting closer. This is a huge and diversified operation that includes cattle, timber, citrus, beekeeping, wildlife conservation, and sod farming on 9,000 acres in northeast Sarasota County. Hurricane Ian touched every corner. Pine trees are twisted and bent in half. Metal roofs are ripped from barns. Beehives are toppled and sprawling oaks are crashed atop fences. Coddington has been riding horseback to survey the 128 miles of fence. Will be months, I'm sure, before we can completely look at all of our fence lines. I know we might have at least 10 miles and maybe, you know, and probably more, but that's what I've got down so far. 
He says this ranch runs 1,200 mama cows and most survived the storm. Coddington is a sixth-generation cowboy and past president of the Florida Cattlemen's Association. The group has turned a nearby stockyard into a distribution center for emergency supplies like posts, barbed wire, chainsaw fuel, and hay. The Florida Department of Agriculture is still gathering information on the extent of the widespread damage to farms and ranches and preparing a federal farm disaster request. Jim Strickland, another sixth-generation cattleman who has a neighboring ranch says the scene here is playing out at cattle ranches all across this part of Florida. Right now we first strategy uh, almost a triage situation is we are going around our perimeter fences just to make certain that we fix every hole every tree that's on that fence to keep our cattle from getting out from getting on the road and somebody getting hurt. He says flooded pastures mean the grass is no longer good for grazing and that cattle have been standing in water, which could lead to disease, including foot rot. And high water is lingering. Coddington says the south end of the Longinot Ranch is not accessible. That is still underwater. I mean, there's no way I can get it. Even on a horse, it's halfway up over my boots, you know, so it'll be a week, 10 days probably before we'll be able to get down there. It's a bumpy ride out to the citrus groves because the water flow was so strong during Hurricane Ian that it carved deep ruts in the truck path that runs through the ranch. The wind damage is stark. Row after row of trees are bent in the same direction toward the southeast, stripped of leaves and fruit. Citrus got beat pretty hard. It put the whole grapefruit, we're in the grapefruit and oranges. All of our grapefruit crop is on the ground. Coddington says this year's fruit crop is a total loss, and he estimates as much as 30% of the trees won't recover. Even before the storm, the USDA had predicted the Florida orange crop would be down by a third this year. Coddington says this is yet another blow at a bad time, with farmers already under pressure because inflation has driven up the cost of doing business. I mean, we're kind of a price taker. We can't set our price for a profit or or a break even we take kind of what we get and uh, so it's been kind of hard to survive and then you get one of these stomped on top of you it, it makes it tough he estimates it could take up to five years to fully recover from hurricane ian it's like starting at square one the first day or two after the storm, I was wondering whether I really wanted to start over again, but, but it's in your blood to do it, and it just, that's what we do. So, After nine days with no power, he arrives back at the ranch office to a sign of progress as power crews test their repairs. You all good? You, you the man. Lights, you the man. Friend. You Thank got you. lights. Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, no. One step on the long road to recovery. Coddington says Hurricane Ian won't knock down determined Florida ranchers. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Sarasota County. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a graphic memoir for young adults from someone who survived a mass shooting on her college campus and how she's found hopefulness in her life once again. 
On Wall Street, big gains to start up the week. The Dow gained 1.86 percent. That's 551 points. It closed at 30,186. S&P rose even more, 2.65 percent, to finish the day at 36.78. The Nasdaq gained nearly 3.5 percent to close at 10,676. Home sales are cooling in the Bay State. Nearly 4,600 homes sold in the state last month. That's a drop of more than 15 percent from a year ago. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors blames the dip on rising mortgage interest rates, says have made finding an affordable home even harder. The average selling price of a house in the state is $570,000. That's up more than 8% from this time last year. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. Got a few streaks of sunshine out there in the Boston area right now. A lot of clouds are on, too, though. Maybe a thunderstorm overnight tonight, sticking right to the mid-50s. Tomorrow could be much like today. Mainly cloudy, rainy. Most of the showers should be in the first part of the day. High temperatures about 61 degrees. Sunshine ahead for Wednesday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. For artist and author Kendra Neely, serenity could be found in part of the Umpqua National Forest. This is a little bit of a steep ravine, but then you're like right on the river. There was this huge like rock cutout on the opposite side that when the sunlight hit it, it was so beautiful. It just had this really beautiful shine about it. And the water was always like crazy crisp and fresh. It's one of the places that she loved to draw to get inspiration for her work. What I love about drawing is that it can do so many things for you mentally. When I'm doing things like comics, especially in the early production of them, it's more of a puzzle to solve because you're trying to tell a story the best way and how can you make the characters and background work for you. And in her debut graphic novel, Numb to This, the puzzle that Kendra Neely is trying to solve is her own. Neely is a survivor of the October 2015 mass shooting at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. Nine people were killed and eight were injured that day. In her book, Neely tells not just the story of the shooting, but also what it's like to work to heal from trauma, even as a steady stream of mass shootings in the United States continues. I spoke with Neely a few days after the seventh anniversary of the shooting, and a note Our conversation includes discussion of suicide. I started by asking Neely how she was doing. I'm doing a lot better than I thought I would. There were certainly a few moments that were a little rough um, with the anniversary, but 
it's been um, seven years and I have definitely gained the skills I think that I need to not move past it, but live with it in a way that is like still functional. You know, there are a million things about this book that I want to talk to you about. But one of the things that jumped out to me is the way that you wrote about feeling violated after a national newspaper published a photo of you hugging your friend Josh after the shooting. And it strikes me that that happened seven years ago. And now you and I are having this conversation. So I I guess I want to ask you, what can we as journalists do better? What could have gone better in that moment for you? Um, after a lot of reflection and um, also hearing from journalists who were there that day, I think the answer is both in how can we take care of our journalists and also how do we take care of the people that they are, you know, talking to, because there were several people there that day that I understand they were kind of like new to the, new to the field and they didn't receive any care afterwards. They didn't receive any debriefing Um, And they weren't really instructed on how to go about this kind of thing in a sensitive and caring manner. Um, I think the best thing is kind of the golden rule of like, hey, if you were in this situation, would you want someone talking to you the way that you're talking to them? One of the themes that comes up over and over again in your book is there are these scenes where you're inundated by text messages and alerts every single time there is another mass shooting in this country. The Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, the shooting at a Las Vegas music festival, Parkland, Florida. And when I look at the pages of the book, the way you've illustrated it, you're just surrounded by all of these tweets and messages and alerts. And it it looks chaotic. But I want to ask you, what does it feel like for you? What is that like? It feels very chaotic in the moment when it happens. And it can be very overwhelming. I think now uh, in the book, I, it was a little bit more chaotic just because I wasn't really dealing with my feelings very well. And now that I have more tools, um, it still hurts. I mean, Uvalde especially really felt like the wind got knocked out of me. Um, It's not always like that with every single one. And I do kind of take precautions now just so that way I'm not overwhelmed by it. Uh, I think I've been lucky with um, not having a lot of resources to be able to afford constant counseling that uh, the free resources that I have had access to, um, I've gotten very lucky with the people that I've talked to that have been really precise. It's just about recognizing when I do feel that way and kind of just being like, no, it, it, it is okay to feel bad. These are things you should feel bad about. Um, and that helps because then you're processing the motion and you're not just holding on to it and letting it fester and get, and get worse. You wrote about those struggles openly in the book as well as your suicide attempt. And I notice at the end of your book, you list a number of resources, including the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 988 and others. What would you say to someone who has perhaps gone through something similar or someone who might be struggling with thoughts of ending their life? Um, I think... Uh, I would tell them that 
I don't necessarily know that it gets better. I still have those thoughts and that's okay because I, I have ways to deal with them now. It's not, you're not a bad person for having those thoughts and um, that there are a great many people, people that you would be probably really surprised about that um, that would be very upset um, if you were gone. And there have been so many moments that I'm so happy that I didn't miss. Um, and I, I just can't express how much joy you will feel in the moments um, when you realize that you didn't miss them later. In the book, you write about when you and some friends came to Washington and went to the March for Our Lives rally on the National Mall. And you quote one of the speakers who says, this march is not the climax, it's the beginning. So Kendra, I wanna ask you, what comes next? I think a lot of work, uh, <laughs> a lot of work, um, but it's important work, it's work worth doing. Um, not only with like gun control measures. I think there's a tendency for people to say, you can't really care much outside of your own community. There's like a certain, you know, bandwidth of compassion that people are capable of. But I don't think that that's true. I think that people are capable of a great amount of love and that we can work together to improve the situation for everybody in this country. You end your book with the idea that listening is a tremendous act of love. It requires patience and humility. And that's a really beautiful thought. And I would just also like to add that sharing your story so that others can listen to it sometimes takes a lot of courage. So I'd just like to thank you for sharing yours with us. Thank you so much. That is Kendra Neely. Her new graphic novel is Numb to This. Kendra, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The sun has shown up a little bit as the day comes to an end, but for the most part, it'll be cloudy and wet this evening and overnight tonight. Lows still around 55 tonight. Tomorrow, gray again. Could see the sunshine, though, for Wednesday. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu met. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. Every moment that voters spend thinking about Herschel Walker's past and background is a moment that Republicans wish they would spend thinking about Joe Biden and the economy instead. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukraine has been hit by another series of Russian attacks. At least four people were killed in the capital when Russian drones struck Kyiv. As NPR's Charles Maines tells us, the stepped-up Russian offense has been messy with many potential soldiers fleeing to avoid fighting with Ukrainian troops. People are fleeing um, from these mobilization efforts, uh, although the lines that we saw initially in some of these surrounding countries like Georgia and Kazakhstan have died down a bit. Uh, even today in Moscow, in fact, uh, the mayor of Moscow announced that the mobilization, mobilization drive was officially ending. Um, so that's supposedly to kind of subside some of the panic around this. NPR's Charles Maines, authorities say the Russians appear to have shifted their strategy. Instead of hitting Ukraine's nuclear power plant, they're firing deeper into Ukraine to prevent the power plant from reconnecting. Protests continued at Tehran University and elsewhere over the weekend with demonstrations calling and demonstrators, rather, for the uh, end of the Islamic regime. Meanwhile, NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the Iranian government has doubled the official death toll to eight from a prison fire. The higher death toll is still well below the estimates of human rights groups. Iran's state news agency reported that the head of Iran's Human Rights Council visited the prison and said, quote, thugs and prisoners convicted of violent crimes had clashed with prison guards before adding that the unrest was over and calm had been restored. He made no mention of two Americans held at the prison or anti-government activists or political prisoners. The European Union is reportedly considering new sanctions, including blacklisting Iran's morality police. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks finished sharply higher on Wall Street, recovering most of the ground lost in last week's big sell-off. This comes after news the U.K.'s new Treasury chief has abandoned a series of unfunded tax cuts. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has rejected a proposed 20% pay raise that city councillors approve for themselves and for her. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. The council voted unanimously for the proposal earlier this month. It would have bumped each member's pay from about $103,000 to $125,000 annually after the next election. The mayor's salary would have increased from $207,000 to a quarter of a million dollars a year. The council's plan was higher than an 11% pay hike that Mayor Wu proposed. In a letter to the council today, the mayor stated that the raises were out of line with what some other city workers were getting. She's recommending the council adopt her original recommendation. To override the veto and approve the larger raises, nine of the 13 councillors would need to vote to do so. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The city of Boston is teaming up with a coalition of community groups to buy more than 100 affordable housing rental units. The $47 million deal involves the purchase of 36 apartment buildings in East Boston. The goal is to ensure housing for families who are being displaced by what the group calls a wave of gentrification in the traditionally working-class neighborhood. About one-quarter of the units will be set aside for people making $35,000 a year or less. The remaining three-quarters will be for those making between thirty-five dollars and $70,000. More than a dozen truck drivers who were out on strike were arrested during a rally in Plimpton this morning. Police say members of Teamsters Local 653 used tractor trailers to block exits at a food warehouse run by restaurant supplier Cisco. The truckers have been on strike from that company since October 1st. They're asking Cisco for better pay and benefits. And a 10-year-old in Connecticut is recovering from a black bear attack. Witnesses say the boy was playing in his grandparents' backyard when the bear bit down on his leg and tried to drag him off. Police responded and killed the bear. 
Experts say many bears in New England are becoming less afraid of humans. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. The sunshine's peeking through the clouds around the Boston area, but look for showers, maybe a thunderstorm overnight tonight. Should feel right about where it is right now in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, rain returns mostly before 1 in the afternoon. Clouds stick around for the day, 61 degrees tops, and then sunshine returns for Wednesday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signaled that he might be willing to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Speaking on CNN last week, President Biden warned that to do so would risk escalation. Miscalculation could occur. No one can be sure what would happen and it could end in Armageddon. Well, experts who study Russian nukes say that a dangerous game of escalation is already underway in Ukraine. And as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, they see plenty of possibility for trouble ahead. Russia and the West have thousands of nuclear weapons. They've been used to create a bright line. Neither side can start a direct war with the other. Olga Olikur is with the International Crisis Group. She says that line still exists in Ukraine. We have seen nuclear deterrence work on the part of both the Russians and Western countries because both Moscow and all the Western capitals are avoiding direct conflict with one another. So far, NATO troops are not in this fight, and Russia isn't attacking neighboring NATO countries either. But for Russia, the clear line about when to use nuclear weapons may be starting to get blurry. As its war is stalled, thanks in large part to weapons supplied by the West, Putin has stepped up his nuclear threats. Olikar says it's an attempt to take the old rules of nuclear deterrence and stretch them. Russia keeps trying to have the deterrence go a little bit further. It may also be trying to expand the territory it can defend with nukes. Russia recently annexed four regions of Ukraine. Anya Fink studies Russia's nuclear doctrine at the Center for Naval Analysis. She says Russia's official policy is that it would only use nuclear weapons to defend its own territory. The big question is, are the parts of Ukraine that Russia has attempted to join to itself, are those parts Russian territory or not. Fink says Russia might be willing to use nuclear weapons in a conflict because it believes that Western non-nuclear weapons are far better than Russian ones. For Russia, um, 
nuclear weapons, particularly non-strategic nuclear weapons, are really intended to kind of counterbalance what they see as U.S. and NATO conventional superiority. In other words, before this war even started, Russia was already thinking about how to use nukes in a conflict where it's outgunned by Western anti-tank missiles and precision artillery, a war that arguably looks a lot like the clobbering the Russian army is getting today in Ukraine. Russia's nuclear arsenal includes between one and 2,000 so-called tactical weapons. They can be smaller and are meant for the battlefield, but in Ukraine, it's not clear how to use them. There are really uh, no plausible military missions for uh, these weapons, uh, especially in this war. Pavel Podvig is with the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. Tactical nukes were originally designed to take out big, juicy Cold War-era targets, stuff like columns of armored tanks or aircraft carriers. In this war, the troops are spread out. Putin would have to use a bunch of little nukes, which would create a radioactive mess his own troops would also have to deal with. More likely, says Podvig and others, is that Putin would opt for a single tactical nuke. The goal would be to make a bang big enough to get the West to think twice. For that to be uh, truly shocking, uh, you really need to make it clear that you are willing to target civilians. Uh, and that means, basically, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, killing a lot of people. There's no guarantee it would work. The other side might not back down, and things would get a lot worse from there. But this is still all highly theoretical. There's a lot of question marks here. Olga Oliker of the International Crisis Group says it's not clear how the two sides find a way out of this conflict. If I try to tell myself a story of how to get there, it requires a whole bunch of leaps and jumps. But, you know, the path towards global thermonuclear war also has some leaps and jumps. For now, the U.S. government says Russia's nukes remain locked up in storage. Oliker says she hopes they'll stay there. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Back in March, Joe Aragoni took his wife Joni to the shoe store. Joni lives with early-onset Alzheimer's, and that morning she had been insisting that she needed new shoes, even though she already owned many pairs. So after Joe got tired of arguing with her, he agreed to take her to the shoe store. When they got there... Joni began to wander around. He didn't know where she went, but then he heard her voice. And she's talking to the salesperson that she found. And I peek around the corner, and the saleswoman, Michelle, asks her to place her foot in the little metal slide that they use to get the width and the size. And because my wife has a hard time following directions because of, of her illness, she puts her hand down on the measuring tool. And Michelle says, that's okay. Why don't you just stand up and I'll put the tool underneath and we'll measure your foot that way. And Michelle is like, you know, some things are difficult. You know, I, I struggle too. She says, cause I, I have some anxiety and, um, uh, I also have autism. And when I heard that, I it, ugh, it just broke my heart because I couldn't generate the patience and the compassion. And here 
this was was the salesperson who my expectation was that they're not going to be able to understand Joni and I'm going to have to step in and, and do everything anyway. And they just created this beautiful moment and uh, um, still chokes me up a, a, a little bit. When you're a full-time caregiver, 24-7, sometimes I can take a toll on you and uh, your level of compassion or hope can get depleted. And so you can be just desperate for some type of relief from that responsibility. And when, when someone who themselves already has difficulty navigating our world is caring for your loved one with more patience and compassion than you can muster at that moment. It's doubly impactful. It, it's beyond words. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Joe Aragoni of Orland Hills, Illinois. By the way, they did find Joni a pair of shoes, and Joe was able to go back into the store and tell Michelle thank you. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Across the country, over the counter hearing aids are now available in more stores and online. That means no doctor's office visit or prescription to get them, and it could mean less expensive options for millions of people in this country with hearing loss. Nina Kick reports on aging for Vermont Public, and she's here to tell us more about the new devices. Welcome. Thank you. So, Nina, I understand you've actually been talking a lot about these over-the-counter hearing aids with your mom. Tell us what's what's right. intrigued her so much about these new options. We were actually out shopping, uh, browsing over-the-counter hearing aids at Best Buy yesterday. And, and like a lot of people, I think the price point is what's the biggest plus for her, plus convenience. Um, my mom is in her late 80s, and like a lot of Americans, she put off getting prescription hearing aids longer than she probably should have, mm. mostly because of how much they cost. And just to uh, explain to people that haven't gotten hearing aids before, they're really expensive. They can cost anywhere from $2,000 a pair up to 6000 or more. Wow. So they're a big ticket item, and Medicare and most private insurance doesn't cover them. So my mom's excited about the price point, and she's also been seeing TV ads for over-the-counter hearing aids a lot lately, like uh, this one for a brand called Lively. They cost thousands less. It's insanely user-friendly. You take the hearing test online, the doctor programs in the settings, you don't even need to go into an office. They're delivered to your door in a few days, and you're up and running in no time delivered to your door, super convenient. I mean, it, it, it almost makes it sound like it's fun to get your hearing aids figured out. <laughs> it's so easy. Well, well, how are these hearing aids different from like prescription hearing aids or some of the other devices that have been sold for years in drugstores? 
Yeah, you're probably talking about some of the low-cost headsets you might see to boost your TV or devices like hunters or bird watchers wear that amplify sound. These are not those. Those are amplification devices. And to avoid confusion, you're going to want to look for the words hearing aid on the package uh, to know that you are, in fact, getting a hearing aid. If it says that, it'll have customizable volume control and it'll have met these new FDA standards for things like safety and labeling and effectiveness. Um, the other difference between these new over-the-counter devices and the prescription devices that have been available is you don't go through a specialist, so you don't have an audiologist kind of holding your hand through the process. Consumers will do that themselves, and if they're tech-savvy, that might be a breeze, downloading an app, working with a web interface. But, you know, going through or thinking about my mother going through this process, someone who's not so tech-savvy, who's got vision problems, I can see that being an issue. Kelly Rohr, an audiologist at Rutland Regional Medical Center in Vermont, says she's getting all kinds of calls from people asking about these new devices. I do love that there's some hype because it's getting the word out about hearing loss and hearing devices and destigmatizing all of them. But there's definitely the um, possibility of people spending money on something that's just not going to work for them. But how do you avoid that? Like, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to buy these. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think just main thing is make sure you can get your money back. Have a long return window, at least 30 days, long warranty, and make sure whatever you buy has a lot of customer support backing it. So if you need help, you can easily get it. Audiologists also recommend anyone experiencing hearing loss get a hearing test first to rule out any medical issues. Nina Keck is a senior reporter with Vermont Public. Thank you, Nina. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, what Yankee Candle reviews may reveal about spikes in COVID cases. That's to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. The Boston Book Festival kicks off Friday, October 28th and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there. Get details at wbur.org events. In the forecast, lots of gray out there right now, dreary and damp into the evening, maybe some thunderstorms overnight, temperatures holding steady in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, a damp morning with showers likely for the first part of the day, cloudy skies through the afternoon, breezy and a little bit milder, up around 61. We could be in for a nice change on Wednesday. Sunny skies, gusty winds, highs about 58, maybe bright and breezy through the rest of the work week as well. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Cabot in Beverly with the Squirrel Nut Zippers and the Dirty Dozen Brass Bands Southern Remedies Tour, Thursday, November 3rd. Tickets at thecabot.org. Political analysts call the Hispanic vote a sleeping giant. Most still vote Democratic, but the GOP is gaining ground among people like this Nevada voter. I looked at my mom and I told her, we're in the wrong party. We're Republican because everything just checked off with the way I was raised. It was very conservative. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. We'll listen to Hispanic voters from across the country on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Over the course of the pandemic, people began noticing something weird happening in the reviews section for Yankee Candles on Amazon. It seemed like whenever there was a spike in COVID cases, there was also an influx of reviews complaining about scentless candles, perhaps because COVID had wiped out some people's sense of smell. Nick Beecham of Northeastern University had studied how social media could predict COVID prevalence. So when he got wind of the Yankee Candle phenomenon, he knew just how to proceed. I just thought, well, it's easy enough to do. Maybe I'll just try scraping some Amazon reviews and uh, see what the actual trends are. The results of his analysis were clear. When COVID cases surged, there was a corresponding rise in negative candle reviews, even after controlling for seasonality. And he found similar trends for perfume reviews, suggesting it wasn't a Yankee Candle-specific phenomenon. Beecham says data points like online reviews can be a useful supplement to more traditional measurements of COVID prevalence, like case counts. Those of us who sort of still care about and worry about the pandemic and don't think that it's over are grasping around for other sources of data that can be used to to track, uh, you know, new waves and that sort of thing. That's especially true as COVID testing and reporting have changed. Infectious disease doctor Abrar Karan of Stanford University points out that case counts may not present as clear a picture as they used to. A lot of testing got decentralized such that people were testing at home. And so we weren't able to get a good grasp of how many people were actually testing positive after a certain point because a number of people tested at home and then they isolated. That data didn't get reported to public health departments. So are Yankee Candle reviews the new COVID metric? These kind of things are used in public health, you know, more for research. But at this point in COVID, I don't think candle reviews are going to change kind of uh, our, our public health strategy. In the meantime, feel free to enjoy those seasonal fall scents like spooky spider cider. But if you don't smell anything, maybe grab a COVID test before leaving a review. As recently as 2018, many of the top U.S. orchestras were playing little, if any, music by women composers. What a difference four years can make. That's a piece by Jesse Montgomery, one of many women composers whose music is turning up on more and more concert programs. NPR's Tom Heisinger explores how the sounds of our symphony halls are slowly growing more diverse. Four years ago, the numbers for women composers at the symphony orchestra didn't look so good. Obviously, zero is a very damning number. That zero was the number of women composers the Philadelphia Orchestra played in its 2018-19 season. Chief Programming Officer Jeremy Rothman was contrite back then, but this season, he says, the orchestra has numbers to be proud of. Every program that we look at is an authentic representation of our community and of our world. And that includes gender, sexual orientation, geography, cultures, religions, backgrounds. And the numbers in Philly this season? More than one in four composers are women. There are three world premieres by Living Women and more music by a new favorite, the early 20th century black composer Florence Price. The orchestra's recording of her once-forgotten symphonies earned Philly a Grammy in April. Why? 
Why the sudden shift to more women composers? Anne Majet, former classical critic for the Washington Post, says it pretty much had to happen. The changes that everybody in the orchestra business said, well, this will take years, all of a sudden accelerated by the pandemic, but also by the general social discussion and the tenor of the times, it became clear that you couldn't not do this. The other aspect of it is just a sheer business reality. Simon Woods is the CEO of the League of American Orchestras, a membership organization supporting symphony orchestras across the country. All the classical art forms are going to have to think about how to come out and meet changing demographics and meet changing society in new ways. If you don't think that, then you're not paying attention. And many orchestras seem to have gotten the memo. Even composers like Jesse Montgomery say they are feeling a shift. It does seem to be changing that orchestras and chamber groups and opera companies are embracing composers that they wouldn't have traditionally embraced. Like Montgomery herself, who's the composer in residence at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. She's writing three major pieces for Chicago. The first one, Hymn for Everyone, premiered in April. You know, there's prejudice and discrimination in many areas of life, and so we shouldn't be surprised that it shows up in the classical music field, and I think we're grappling with that now. But grappling in a positive way, Wood says. A new report by the Institute for Composer Diversity shows a 600% increase in music composed by women over the past six years. And women composers of color, starting at next to nothing, is up a whopping 1,400%. The exciting thing is that it's really a a general trend happening at everything from the smallest regional orchestras to the very largest orchestras in this country. And mid-level orchestras like the Nashville Symphony, which last month played the world premiere of Julia Wolfe's Her Story, a kind of oratorio inspired by the long struggle for women's rights. Julia Wolfe's music is being performed by the big orchestras in Boston, Chicago, and New York this season. She has battled sexism, she says, but nothing compared to her predecessors. I could complain about it, you know, but it's so much easier for me than, say, like the generation before me. So I think of people like Joan Tower and Tanya Leon and Meredith Monk. They really had to get the machete out and carve a path. You know, nobody was really truly recognizing women composers in that generation. And it's not the fault of the music, critic Anne Majette says, it's the organizations that present it. I think the institution of the orchestra needs a big overhaul. I've been drawing the restaurant parallel, and it really is as if we were eating in a bunch of 1970s-era restaurants that hadn't been refurbished. One of those restaurants, Majette says, is the Cleveland Orchestra. Their numbers of women composers are up, but out of the 42 different composers they're presenting this season, only three are women, including the suddenly popular 19th-century French composer Louise Farrenc. So the big question remains, will this trend of more works by women at the symphony last? I feel like once you've opened that door, you can't close it. Even if for some orchestras it's tokenism, there's a fundamental sort of shift happening. And I hope the future looks much more like the Philadelphia Orchestra season this year and much less like what we've come out of. Tom Heisinger, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds, working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at fjc.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is WBUR, a heavy cover of clouds overnight tonight, the chance of thunderstorms as well, about 55 overnight. Tomorrow, gray once again. The rain should hold on during the first part of the day, highs about 61 degrees. And then sunshine should emerge on Wednesday, temperatures in the upper 50s, which is where they are right now, 59 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden's trying to help Democratic candidates this fall. He's not doing a lot of campaign rallies, but instead going to closed-door fundraisers. And that's in part because he can raise money in larger amounts for the National Party, and in part because when a president's less popular, specific candidates are sometimes less eager to be seen on stage with them. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on Joe Biden's efforts on the campaign trail coming up. Also ahead, software that helps landlords set the highest possible prices for rent. And tonight on Marketplace, farmers in southern Texas are struggling through a drought, and that means crops have taken a significant hit. I wouldn't offer more than about 5,000 crops. So it's off, probably 40% off. And that I can, we can basically say due to lack of irrigation water. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We have ahead the Wall Street performance and the forecast. It's now 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Department of Justice is asking a judge to sentence former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon to six months in jail for criminal contempt. More from NPR's Carrie Johnson. A jury has convicted Steve Bannon of two misdemeanors after he flouted demands from the congressional panel investigating the Capitol siege. The Justice Department says Bannon has pursued a, quote, bad faith strategy of defiance and contempt. Rather than comply with Congress, prosecutors say Bannon mocked members of the January 6th committee. DOJ is asking Judge Carl Nichols to impose a fine of $200,000 in addition to the six months jail time. Lawyers for Bannon say he believed the former president asserted executive privilege to bar his testimony. Bannon's asking for probation and he wants to stay out of jail pending appeal. 
He's scheduled to be sentenced Friday. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Tonight marks the second debate for Senate candidates in Ohio, one of several tight races where Senate debates are still scheduled to happen. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports debate season got off to a slow start nationwide. Candidates in many races initially were hesitant to agree to debates. On the Senate side, many eventually acquiesced, albeit in some cases to only one matchup. Nevada's Senate race has no debates scheduled. Similar themes have popped up in different Senate debates. Democratic candidates are attacking Republicans as too extreme on abortion, and Republicans are attacking Democrats on the economy. In Ohio's last debate, Democrat Tim Ryan attacked Republican J.D. Vance for his close ties to former President Donald Trump. And Vance argued Ryan isn't focused enough on inflation. Senate candidates will also debate in Utah tonight, and debates are still to come in multiple other Senate races, including Colorado and Florida. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. Gas prices have edged down nationwide over the past few days, but are still 20 cents higher than they were a month ago. NPR's Wilkel Maria Dillon talked to commuters in the San Francisco Bay Area. For a dose of perspective, Georgia has the nation's lowest gas prices, averaging 3.25 per gallon. That's almost half what it is here in California, the highest in the country at more than $6 a gallon. At a 7-Eleven gas station in Martinez, commuters grumble at the pump and rarely top it off. The cheaper one, $6. Robson Rodriguez, who owns an auto gas repair business, put $50 of regular in his van. If I go to Shell or Chevron, it's almost $7. It's being ridiculous. California gas prices are higher because refinery outages pinched supply. Also, state law requires special formulations that make gas sold here the cleanest in the world. I'm Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, Martinez, California. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 550 points today. The Nasdaq rose 354 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Woburn police officer has resigned days after the city launched an investigation into allegations he was involved in a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The city says John Donnelly submitted his resignation today. The police department says it will continue the investigation to determine if Donnelly helped plan and take part in the 2017 rally. That rally led to a woman's death when a man drove into a ca- crowd of counter-protesters. Haverhill school officials have announced there will be no classes in the city tomorrow. In Malden, no decision's been made yet. School was canceled in both cities today after teachers went on strike this morning. An Essex County court has scheduled a hearing for tomorrow morning to determine whether the union that represents Haverhill teachers will face fines for the strike. In both Haverhill and Malden, teachers want higher pay. Negotiators who represent striking Malden teachers say the school district is hemorrhaging educators because of low pay. Doug Dias is a union negotiator in Malden. We've lost too many educators to other districts that can and have been able to afford to pay teachers a better rate. And to see uh, too many of our teachers going off into the suburbs and getting more pay is disappointing and saddening for us because our kids deserve to have those quality educators as much as anybody. School officials in both cities say they're disappointed the unions have chosen to strike. Talks resumed today in Haverhill, but city officials in Malden have not said when talks will resume. More than 100 state lawmakers are asking regulators to reel in energy rate hikes slated to hit Massachusetts residents this winter. The bipartisan group of 31 state senators and 76 state representatives sent a letter to the State Department of Public Utilities. It said the rate increases will disproportionately affect the most vulnerable people in the state. 
National Grid predicts the average customer's electricity bill will go up more than $110 a month starting in November. The utility's gas customers can expect a bill that is $50 more each month. Eversource predicts gas bills for its customers will go up as much as $86 a month in the upcoming heating season. Another partial subway shutdown goes into effect tonight so the MBTA can perform track work. Shuttle buses will replace trains on the blue line between Bowdoin and Orient Heights for the next four evenings. The shutdown will start at 8.45 tonight and last through the end of service each night through Thursday. And police in Swampscott are warning people about the danger of coyotes. A man was surrounded by a pack of the animals while he was walking his dog this weekend. Police responded and say they saw at least nine coyotes. Officers safely escorted the man home. They're recommending people out for a walk bring noisemakers or pepper spray to deal with the coyotes and scare them away. In the forecast, some random showers through the evening hours overnight tonight. Not too much change in temperature in the mid-50s overnight tonight. And then tomorrow, up around 61, another day of gray, though. Some showers mainly in the morning. For Wednesday, the sunshine should return and stick around possibly for a few days. 59 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. If you feel like you've been getting squeezed on rent these days, or you've been priced out of the market for your area entirely, you're not alone. Rental rates for housing are rising around the country, sometimes by double-digit percentages. One reason might be a software algorithm that helps landlords set the highest possible prices for rent. A new report from ProPublica examines a Texas-based company called RealPage, which makes the program. Reporter Heather Vogel is here to talk about it now. Hi, Heather. Hi. Would you tell us first what prompted you to look into this software and this company? Sure. I actually received an email from a tenant who was so alarmed by the rent increases that he was seeing in Seattle that he started poking around doing some research into what was happening with the property managers in his neighborhood. And he came across RealPage and mention of this pricing software. And so he reached out to me and I was intrigued and started looking into it myself. Walk us through how the software works, how the algorithm works. The algorithm takes into account characteristics of apartments like the floor plan, bedrooms, things like that, and also of the property that the apartment's located in. And then what it does is it makes a recommendation to the property manager, a suggested price for every available unit, and the property manager can decide whether they want to accept or suggest it. But what we were told by a few former RealPage executives was that typically about 90% of those suggestions are adopted, as the software suggests. Overall, how much were you able to determine the degree to which this company is a driving force behind rising rental rates in the country? I think it's very difficult to pin that question down. I could not answer that definitively with my reporting. But we were able to see the impact was in certain specific neighborhoods in terms of how many landlords were using the software, what the rent trends were, and also the company's own marketing material uh, boasted repeatedly that they were helping landlords beat the market by 3 to 7%. Well, you know, many renters know that sometimes you can go to your landlord and say, could you not raise it this year or could you not raise it as much? But one of the things I found most striking about your report 
reporting is that the software basically eliminates empathy from the process. Could you explain that? RealPage was discouraging landlords and is discouraging landlords from bargaining with renters, suggesting that landlords accept the prices as is instead of working things out with renters. One of the reasons we were told that it does that, as one of the developers put it, there was a feeling among property managers that leasing agents, the people who are on the ground actually helping renters sign their leases and hammering out these final details, they might have too much empathy for the renters. So that was, you know, an actual phrase that somebody used to me. It sounds like it almost lets people be hard-hearted by hiding behind the software. I guess there's some people who probably would see it that way. (laughs) Did you find any instances of landlords who rejected the program's high or higher prices? I did speak with one property agent who said that when her building started using Yieldstar, it was really shooting for very high prices and leasing slowed way, way, way down. So they did push back. The landlord ended up raising rents a little bit more gradually. And she kind of came away with it, not sure whether the pricing software may have been correct or whether her judgment may have been correct. What did this company, RealPage, say about its software when you talked to them? They told me that their software uses aggregated market data from, quote, a variety of sources in a legally compliant manner. And they said that the old way of checking prices for competitors was that the property managers would call around and find out what their competitors were charging. They said that their software eliminates the need to make those sorts of calls, which the company said could itself put the property manager at risk of uh, collusion. Heather, after all your reporting, what did you come away thinking this means for renters overall? Well, I think that there is a big concern that this type of software being used so much in certain markets will push prices up above competitive levels. We know that there are a lot of renters devoting an increasing amount of their income to rent, and it's creating a very big burden for them. That's ProPublica reporter Heather Vogel. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you so much. As the midterms draw closer, President Biden is spending more time on the road trying to help Democratic candidates in certain tough races, but not all of them. NPR's Tamara Keith traveled with him to Colorado, California and Oregon to suss out his strategy. At a union hall in Portland, Oregon, volunteers with the state's Democratic Party sit shoulder to shoulder at long tables, dialing voters on their cell phones. They're here to help Tina Kotek the Democrat running for governor who is facing a tough three-way race. Hello, Oregon. In walks President Biden, pink and white donut box in hand. I assume you're clapping for the donuts. Like many presidents before him at this point in their first term, Biden is unpopular. That means there are a lot of races where he could hurt more than he helps. But Oregon is a very blue state. You know, when I was running for office, and thank you, some of you helped me here, God, it was nice winning by 16 points. God, But two years later, Democrats are nervous. There's an independent candidate who could peel off enough Democratic votes to open the door for the first Republican governor of Oregon in more than a generation. At one point, Biden puts his arm around Kotek. What a governor does matters. It matters. It matters, it matters, it matters. The next day, they were at a union training center raising money. Then they stopped into a Baskin-Robbins for some ice cream. I'm getting a double-dip chocolate chip on the waffle cone. Biden projected calm as he waited for his waffle cone. I think she's going to win. 
And I, I really do. I think people are going to show up and vote. I think it's going to work. This was Biden's longest campaign swing, but it was decidedly low-key. There were no rallies, just small audience speeches about his accomplishments and a couple of fundraisers. On Friday night in Los Angeles, Biden helped raise $5 million, money that will help congressional candidates all over the country. Brendan Doherty is a politics professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. Any president, even an unpopular president, is the most effective fundraiser in the party. So presidents, even when they're not highly sought after at campaign rallies, are always in high demand when it comes to raising much-needed campaign cash. There are a lot of candidates who don't want to appear side-by-side with Biden. Republicans have roundly mocked them for their remarkable ability to have scheduling conflicts whenever he's in town. But Democratic strategist Liz Smith says Biden and Democrats are being smart. This is not Joe Biden's first rodeo. He lived through the 2010 shellacking where having Barack Obama be so visible in the midterms uh, actually hurt Democrats. And so he's trying to learn from the mistakes of the past, put his ego in the back seat, and it's the best thing for the party as a whole. And there are places where it can help. At an event in Colorado, Biden made sure to give a little extra love to Senator Michael Bennett, who's running for re-election this year in a tougher-than-expected race. Well, I want Michael to come back up here a second. In Los Angeles, Biden touted the infrastructure law at a construction site for a new metro line, shouting out Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's running for L.A. mayor. And the president delivered the core of his midterm message. We've got an election in the month. Voters have to decide. Democrats are working to bring down the cost of things and to talk about around the kitchen table, from prescription drugs to health insurance to energy bills and so much more. We're standing up for working people. Then they stopped into a nearby taco shop for some classic retail politics. How are you? Take out order for Bass. Asked if he might visit states with tougher Senate races like Nevada and Georgia, Biden didn't get into specifics. I'm going to other races. I can't tell you how many, but I'm going to be on the road. In the coming days, Biden will go to Pennsylvania and Florida for more fundraisers. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Hey, Sasha. Yes, Elsa. I have a riddle for you. What is six feet tall, is made of two types of dough, and has a complicated relationship with the force? I'm going to give you a hint. Solo, we'll figure it out. We'll use the force. That's not how the force works. I think the answer has to be Han Solo. Close, but you'd butter. Think again. We're talking about a baked sculpture known as Pan Solo, a doughy version of the iconic image of Han Solo, frozen in carbonite from the film The Empire Strikes Back. It's the latest masterpiece from a mother-daughter baking duo in Benicia, California. Because I was really keen on doing like a C-3PO, R2-D2 sort of thing. And, you know, again, iconic and, and it just makes you smile. That's mom, Catherine Pervan. She says that while the commitment that goes into these massive bread sculptures often exceeds 100 hours, the time spent with her daughter makes it worth it. When we're doing this creative process together, we're just, you know, we put some music on and we're just hanging out after hours. And it's, it's really nice. It's a moment for us. Daughter Hannah Lee Pervan says this has been a lifelong dream. Baking is the the only thing 
I've ever wanted to do my whole life. So all of my, you know, all my good memories, all my happy memories are associated with food and with baking and with my mom and my grandmother. The Pervans have baked a number of Star Wars inspired treats over the years. Annalie can even tell you what the creation should smell like. They smell like, or they should smell like, um, like caramelized, like baking dough. But the final product smells like shellac. Sadly, Hannah Lee, who has ongoing problems smelling and tasting her breads after a bout of COVID, has had to rely on her mom for the smell test. But she says watching others enjoy her creations makes it all worthwhile. To watch other people, like, go to the sculpture and, like, you know, they're so excited about it. And these little kids are going crazy. And it's just something, something that doesn't have to do with taste and smell, but we can make other people happy yeah. through it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, how coal companies declared bankruptcy and transferred assets and avoided paying billions of dollars in cleanup costs and worker obligations. Big gains to start up the week on Wall Street. The Dow gained 1.86 percent. That's 551 points. It closed at 30,186. S&P rose even more, 2.65 percent, to finish the day at 36.78. The Nasdaq gained nearly 3.5 percent to close at 10,676. Boston's hotel revenue from leisure travel is back on track this year to surpass what it was the year before the pandemic. That's according to a new study from the trade group, the American Hotel and Lodging Association. It finds gross receipts from leisure travel are on pace to surpass 2019 levels by more than 12 percent, although that number doesn't account for inflation. Hotel revenue from business travel is still projected down nearly 16 percent from pre-pandemic levels. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Hillside School for boys grades 4 through 9, offering unique programs from a working farm to outstanding athletics to a state-of-the-art innovation center, on-campus and virtual open house from 1 to 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 19th, hillsideschool.net. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Tonight, the Bruins and Florida Panthers meet up on Garden Ice, 7 o'clock start time. Showers, maybe thunderstorms overnight tonight should feel in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, the rain returns, mostly before 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Clouds should stick around for the day, though, inching up to about 61 degrees. Clouds move out after that and leave us with sunshine on Wednesday, maybe on Thursday. Pretty seasonable temperatures in the upper 50s. It is 59 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. 
And I'm Elsa Chang. This week, we're taking a look at coal company bankruptcies and mine reclamation as part of a joint investigation taken on by reporters from Bloomberg News and NPR. Coal companies have used bankruptcy and asset transfers to shed their obligations to their workers and to the environment. One of these companies is Alpha Metallurgical Resources. NPR's Dave Mistich brings us this look at Alpha, at how environmental cleanup is going at sites they used to own, and how it's affected the local community. So today, we're going to be going up on sundial. Junior Walk of Coal River Mountain Watch is an annoyance to coal companies with mines near his home in Raleigh County, West Virginia. A few years back, he was arrested for sitting on one of Alpha's properties to keep them from mining. Walk, who's lived all 32 years of his life in this area, spends his days trying to hold operators to environmental regulations. Around these parts, he says underground mining has been mostly phased out in favor of mountaintop removal. This just erases tracts of land, turns them from one of the most vibrant, biologically diverse forests on the entire planet into a bare rock moonscape where nothing will ever really grow again. We load up and walks green Subaru station wagon to drive around the area as he keeps an eye on nearby mining operations. Many mines here are owned by Alpha, or used to be. Walk takes us up a narrow dirt road. Tree branches and briars scrape across the hood and roof of the car. After a short hike up a hill, we make our way to a clearing. All right, we go to the left right here. Here, to avoid the risk of trespassing, Walk puts a drone up in the air to get a look at the Ed White mine a giant surface mine once owned by Alpha. When they see something potentially off, Walk and the others at Coal River Mountain Watch send their concerns to state regulators. Sometimes small fines are handed down. Other times though, Walk says, regulators just give these companies, especially the most profitable ones, a warning or simply work with them to revise the terms of a permit. For Walk, who worked for a short time in the coal industry when he was younger, his current mission is personal. He points to a giant map on the wall at the offices of Coal River Mountain Watch, noting the potential dangers that loom nearby. That includes the Brushy Fork Impoundment, an enormous dam owned by Alpha that holds back coal slurry. Holds back 7.8 billion gallons of toxic waste, and my parents' house is right here. So if you look at the toe of that field, if it was to bust open and come right out this holler, maybe some of the first people to die. Alpha says on its website that its impoundments are constructed and inspected under federal regulations. The company filed for bankruptcy in August 2015. Since then, the company has transferred more than 300 mining permits to smaller companies. That's more than it currently holds. Along with those permits, Alpha also got rid of its responsibility to reclaim the land it mined. Coal companies are supposed to restore the land under federal law. This is all spelled out in the Service Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977, known as SMACRA. But University of Chicago assistant law professor Josh Macy says through corporate maneuvers like bankruptcy and asset transfers, many big coal companies have been able to shed all sorts of liabilities. The basic idea was that coal companies tried to silo or separate many of their environmental and labor obligations into subsidiaries or certain affiliates and place the coal mines that they viewed as valuable assets into other affiliates. Congress has been forced to step in time and again to fund worker obligations like pensions and black lung benefits, passing most of the cost on to taxpayers. To get a mining permit, coal companies need to be insured for the reclamation that's supposed to happen when they're done mining. But those policies don't always cover the full cost of cleanup. 
Because of that, Macy says taxpayers could end up footing the bill for these obligations too. And it's very, very hard to see how that promise will be fulfilled in a world in which coal mining companies rarely have the resources to pay for reclamation right now. In a deal approved by regulators in West Virginia and Kentucky, Alpha handed over about 230 mining permits to the smaller Lexington Coal Company, along with more than $300 million to fund environmental cleanup. Since taking over these permits, Lexington Coal has racked up a slew of violations for not securing potential environmental hazards. And this lack of cleanup has created some costly problems for those who live near these mines. All of my land has always been dry as powder, but there wasn't no water whatsoever on it. That's 70-year-old Miles Hatfield of Hardy, Kentucky. Hatfield, a former coal miner, lived next to the Love Branch Mine, once owned by Alpha and now on the hands of Lexington. Over time, he started to notice polluted red mine water. After they shut down the mines, that's when it kind of started appearing little by little. A couple of years ago, water from the mine damaged his home to the point where he fell through the floor of his dining room. Since then, the red water from the Love Branch mine has continued to flow into Hatfield's property, forcing him to move out and pay rent for another home. I've lost about everything, uh, everything in my shop, everything I had stored, I kept moving it from a wet place to a dry place, and then the water would catch up. So I basically lost everything I had. Regulators in Kentucky determined that the red water flowing onto Hatfield's property was from the mine and fined Lexington $30,000 in June. Similar stories next to former Alpha Mines, now owned by Lexington, are playing out in southern West Virginia. Beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, in Mingo awesome County, West Virginia, between the towns of Music and Pie is the Mountaineer Mine. 36-year-old Gary Van Natter, another former coal miner, attributes the frequent flooding on his property to mining and a lack of reclamation. They mined underneath us, but now it's like a river underneath us. I mean, it's literally water. It comes out of the ground. Van Natter shows us cracks in the foundation of his home and his above-ground swimming pool that's sinking into the earth. Just across a fence, the ground is opening up in his neighbor's yard. I might have to move. I might not get what I got in this home here, you know. And uh, if I have to leave here, that's just, man, that's, that's gut-wrenching. The Mountaineer mine hasn't produced any coal since 2013, but Lexington Coal Company wound up with the permit and the responsibility to clean up the land as part of the deal with Alpha. State regulator documents say the Mountaineer mine has contributed to the flooding on Van Natter's land. He says he isn't surprised that Alpha offloaded that permit and the others. They done that because they knew that there was going to be future problems. In my mind, why would you, uh, and Lex, I can't believe that Lexington was crazy enough to, to buy all these mines knowing that, hey, it's all going to have to be supposedly restored back to the way it was before you mined it. It can never go back. In a statement to both Bloomberg and NPR, Alpha says it has conducted itself ethically throughout the course of its operations and noted the funding it has provided to smaller operators, like Lexington, who have taken over its mines. Alpha also pointed out that these asset transfers were approved by multiple regulators. Lexington didn't answer questions, but has said in the past that it strives for full compliance with environmental regulations. Dave Mistich, NPR News. The Federal Reserve's attempts to slay the dragon of inflation are changing the way banks make money. Rate hikes mean banks are earning more money through interest, but big money deals are falling through. We had zero interest rates for a decade. We have massive monetary and fiscal stimulus. 
We have the first land war in Europe in uh, 70 years, the highest inflation in 40 years, and the Fed had to move. And with that, there will be consequences. Hear more tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston, with events, book recommendations, a book club, children's story hour, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. Series, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. Learn more at CERES.org slash WBUR. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com.